All that being said, let's go back to Revelation. Uh, last two weeks, three weeks, we covered the uh, trumpets, the six trumpets, the first six. The first one being affecting the land, the third of the uh, earth trees and all green grass. The second trumpet affecting the sea. A third uh, turning to blood. A third of the living sea creatures dying out. A third of the ships being destroyed. I was thinking about that again today, thinking about cruise ships. Uh, Dennis and Kent are on a cruise ship right now down in Mexico area. And I was reading about two or three weeks ago about someone that is paying like major hundreds of thousands of dollars to basically live on a cruise ship. Have you heard about doing that? And then, and then the, the yearly dues or fees, like, oh yeah, I mean, you pay a major price to do that, but then you got to pay a yearly fee of over like $100,000 because they're feeding you, they're doing your laundry, they're, you know, they're doing all that stuff too. But it's like, you got to be pretty wealthy to do that. If you can do it, go for it. You know, I'm not sure if, if I would like doing that or not because I think I'd be like, I want to walk around, I want to get out and do some stuff or whatever. And I know they go to ports and you can do that kind of thing. But anyway, so thinking about that and thinking about cruise ships in general of, of how many they can hold once again, and there's like a third of them being destroyed. You know, what third, I, we're not told. And, and then today I had this thought going through Revelation uh, 10 and 11. Um, and as I actually, I, I sat down today after I studied, I, I spent, here's how my week went. Monday I come in and I got a sermon to prepare. I got a board meeting to get ready for anything else. What am I doing? Almost all day I'm studying Revelation. I, I don't know why, but I love studying this. And uh, two, yesterday I spent on the message for Sunday and I'll do some more of that tomorrow and Friday. But um, I was going through that. I'm going, okay, there's, you know, why a third? God, why a third? I don't know why. Why did, you know, a fourth, you know, earlier on, now a third. And, you know, I don't know why God is incrementally taking the, the population away kind of thing. Uh, I thought about the third of the angels falling, you know, and, and God's very precise. I do know that. Uh, if you look through this and, you know, the day, the hour, the month, the year, I mean, everything God does is, for, is on purpose and, and it's, it's planned out in the mind of God. But uh, thinking about that third uh, of all that, you know, even all, I mean, it says a third of the trees, a third of the uh, whatever, I mean, but it says all the green grass. Even with that, when all the green grass is gone, what are the animals going to eat? What are the grazing animals going to eat? You know, and how it's going to affect everything. Uh, the fourth trumpet, or the third trumpet, affects the rivers, a third of the waters becoming bitter, people dying. The fourth trumpet affecting the heavens, a third of the sun, moon, and stars being uh, darkened uh, and destroyed, whatever. And then a third, day, a third of the day and, and night being dark. And the fourth trumpet, the fifth trumpet affects the health of unbelievers. You know, we talked about this last week, what we call the demon locusts. Uh, five months of torture, pain, agony, and suffering. And then the sixth trumpet we looked at affects the lives of unbelievers. A third of all mankind are killed. Uh, we have the, the, the horses, the heads, the tails, the fire, the smoke, the sulfur. And so there will be a lot of devastation going on. But today, as I was starting to say, today as I was getting into this, um, I read chapter 10, studied that, chapter 11, which we're going to get to tonight, study that and then in context of it all I read through chapter 22 and it's kind of cool to, to, to just to read that much to see but it made sense to me today as we've talked about the linear thinking versus the you know the eastern thinking holistic versus the western mindset linear 
but, it, but it's like, okay, I can kind of see where he really does jump around a lot. John does. In the vision, as we get tonight, he's on earth. He sees the angel, one foot over here in the sea, one foot on land. And, uh, and then John's on earth, it's, it gets a vision, and, and spoken to from heaven kind of thing. And, uh, but it's kind of cool seeing what's going to happen then in t- Revelation 12, 13, 14, all, all the way down through. But how these things all kind of like overlap. And so keep that in mind as, you, as we go through this as well. Because there is a lot of overlapping from the beginning to the end, the end from the beginning, uh, up and down, heaven to earth, and it, it kind of jumps around with that. So, to date, here's my question as we get started. To date, what are some of the main things that have stood out to you thus far in this study? What has stood out to you in our study on Revelation to date? I'll share some of my things with you. But uh, I want to hear from you at least a little bit as we get going. That you're not going to be here, all right? So based on, on, on the rapture, you got a different perspective, okay? All right, anyone else? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. How precise God is, true. Very good. Somebody else, what have you gotten out of this so far? Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I see that too. God's desire to save people and giving people really through the judgments, giving him his mercy and, and time, time to repent. And so, and yet it says that uh, many don't, most don't. It, but it shows me the hard-heartedness of mankind. It shows me the, the enemy deceiving people. All right, so anyone else? What has stood out in this study to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And and they they will not be able to deny this is the hand of God, in the things that are coming. People will see things coming and will not deny that. But because of their deception, the hardness of heart, then you think about I think about Pharaoh, you know, and how his heart became harder and harder and harder. And and uh, so I guess for me, um, as I mentioned earlier, this has been uh, one of for me, very exciting to study this. I, I, I've, I've read it, read it, read it, and, uh, and I'm seeing it. The more you read it, the more it makes sense. So if you're afraid of this book, don't be. You are blessed because you read it. You know, don't have to know it all, but, but I'm just saying you're blessed because of that. And so there is blessing in that. Um, and, and then their thought that hit me is, is, honestly, people really don't know. Even Christians don't know what's coming. And I know that people are afraid to study this book because it, it, it's like, I can't, this is too much going on, I can't handle that, whatever. But, uh, uh, but it shows me that people really don't know what's coming. Um, 
I, I, you know, for me, what has it done so far? I, I understand Daniel's seven, 77s if from Daniel 9, 24 to 27. We read that today as well. But uh, that makes sense to me now in that timetable for that. We'll get into Daniel uh, next in two weeks, I think it is. Um, I can show you where it's at. I typed this out today because last week I, I just wrote out an outline last week and then I typed it out today looking at what what week we're doing what. And so next week is the dragon and the woman, Revelation 12, is the goal for next week. And then March 29, April 5, we'll talk about the two beasts and also spend some time in the book of Daniel as well. But uh, that makes sense to me. Uh, another thing that helped, help, has helped me in the study is, as I mentioned, the Eastern Jewish thinking versus the Western thinking. That has helped me a whole bunch. You know, not thinking linear, but holistic, uh, the bigger picture of things. And then my, the last thing I think it's done for me is, is really having a greater burden for lost people, of, of seeing the, law, the, end, the end fate of mankind, and, and then seeing God's heart for people, uh, wanting to, God doing all he can to get people to repent, and, and yet giving us free will and, and, and the ability for us to make that choice. And so uh, my heart is more burdened than ever for lost people and seeing the, the, final, the final state of mankind. And, and if it breaks my heart, how it must break the heart of God over and over again. Um, one more question. Um, how is God's Word, the Bible, how is God's Word both sweet and bitter? We'll talk about when, when John was given the scroll, the little scroll, and he ate it, and it was sweet, it was like honey in his mouth, but when he ate it, his, tongue, his stomach turned sour. And so how is the Word of God both sweet and bitter? Have you ever thought about it that way? <laughs> it's sweet to the believer, bitter to the unbeliever. Okay, yes. Okay, ditto. Yeah. And that's what we're going to get into tonight as well. Once again, it's our choice. And so, let's get into our lesson tonight. We're going to talk about the mighty angel. We're going to cover both Revelation 10 and 11 tonight. And uh, the mighty angel, chapter 10, and the two witnesses, going to be very interesting in chapter 11. You'll recall that the seals and the trumpets each contain seven parts. Seven seals, seven trumpets, as well as seven bowls. Uh, John, you recall, does not move directly from the sixth to the seventh seal, nor does he move directly from the sixth to the seventh trumpet. He places two visions before the last seal. Likewise, he inserts two visions before the final trumpet. So once again, there's order there. You see that happening even in the first four, the first four seals, the first four horsemen of the apocalypse. You know, and then things change in seal five and seal six, as well as the trumpets, okay? And so uh, we have two visions before the last seal, two before the final trumpet. We're going to focus on those two visions. So that being said, reading, first of all, Revelation chapter 10. Follow along with me in your Bibles. Verse 1, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. So it wasn't sealed, but lay open in his hand. 
he planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. Remember, John was to write down what he saw. I was about to write, but I heard from heaven, a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and the sea and all that is in it. And he said, there'll be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it'll be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So, looking at that, uh, John describes this mighty angel, this big angel, and with a little scroll. And so five questions on your outline we're going to talk about that will help us determine more about chapter 10. So first of all, number one, is this angel only an angel? Yes, but he is great in power and size. Think about it, putting one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. All right. Um, he's big enough to do that. John refers to him as another angel. Another means another of the same kind. And then coming down from heaven, it appears John saw their, this vision from the point of view from the earth. Uh, verse 8 also uh, refers to that in this, in this passage. Uh, so he is an angel, but different from those John has seen in earlier visions. Angels deserve respect, but only God deserves our worship. All right? Angels deserve respect. Only God deserves our worship. Now, um, another, another of the same kind, the angel's description was unusual. He was wearing a cloud, a rainbow crown, his head. His face was as bright as the sun, and his feet were like columns of fire. Now, because the language here is similar to the description of Christ in chapter 1, uh, some theologians identify this angel as Jesus coming down to claim the earth as his possession. However, other theologians take a contrasting view. No one worships this angel. People do worship Jesus. The manner in which he makes an oath by God in 10 verse 6 would be appropriate for an angel to do, but not for Jesus Christ to do. So actually, the description of this angel simply draws attention to his heavenly glory. Uh, one commentator suggests John may be alluding to the angel Gabriel, whose name can mean the mighty one of God. 
We're not told that for sure. It's just speculation. Uh, the cloud and the bow signify God's faithfulness to his promises. The pillars of fire speak of both his protection and his judgment. So we have the angel. Is this only an angel? Yes, it is an angel. It's not Christ. Number two, what does the description of the angel suggest? Once again, he's associated with a rainbow, a cloud, and pillars of fire. Sound familiar in the Old Testament? Uh, these three symbols reminds us that God is faithful to keep his promises. God's a promise-keeping God. He's a covenant-keeping God. You recall that God gave Noah the sign of the rainbow. It assured Noah that God would never destroy the earth again with a flood. Likewise, a cloud and pillar of fire gave assurance to Israel. These signs assured Israel that God was present to do what he had said. And so the message of the mighty angel is that God is about to do what he has promised, also in verse 7. Number two. Number three, what do the seven thunders teach us? Well, the angel uh, sound, or shouted like the roar, he shouted like the roar of a lion. His voice echoes into seven thunders. A voice from heaven told John to seal up these messages. In other words, God didn't allow John to tell us what the seven thunders said. The seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls were all about the judgments of God. In Revelation, thunder is also associated with judgment. We can read about that, Revelation 8, 5, 11, 19, 16, 18. Therefore, it is likely, likely that the seven thunders are seven plagues. Now, this should cause us to be humble about the timing of the events in Revelation. God has kept some secrets about the tribulation to himself. In other words, God does not want us to understand everything about these seven terrible years. In other words, we should not be so concerned then about knowing everything there is to know because you will not be able to know everything there is to know. Only God knows that. And so he doesn't want us to understand everything about these seven terrible years. Uh, so don't be too, too concerned about that. Uh, the only, I think, concern that we all should have is to be ready to meet Jesus when our time comes. That's, to me, the, the, the bigger, the bigger uh, story here. Uh, and the other thing is, when you hear it thunder during a... We, I didn't hear it today, it rained, but I didn't hear it thunder. But when you hear it thunder, remember a great truth. God has reserved some things about the future that he hasn't told anybody, all right? He reveals himself to us clearly, and it's a privilege to know the God who holds the future, but we don't know everything there is to know. I wanted to read to you a comment in the Full Life Study Bible, Fire Bible, Seven Thunders. These signify certain aspects of God's coming wrath and judgment, though John is forbidden to disclose the message of the seven peals of thunder. This indicates that during the tribulation period, judgments not revealed in the seals, trumpets, and bowls will occur. Therefore, no one knows in advance everything that will happen. Thus, he says, we should not be dogmatic about the sequence of events in the book of Revelation. And so, if you come across a teacher 
who is teaching on Revelation, uh, be careful because if they're dogmatic and say this is exactly what's going to happen, you know, I'd be, I'd be cautious there, all right? Therefore, I'm trying to stay away from saying, well, it's this, it's that, it's exactly that. We're given this, but there's so many symbols and so much going on in this book that we don't know everything there is to know. A good teacher will tell you, I don't know all the answers. And if a teacher says, I know all the answers, be weary. <laughs> Watch out for them, okay? That's what I'm trying to get across with the seven thunders. I want to read one more thing here. Uh, like the roar of a lion I thought was interesting here. Um, in, in chapter 10, verse 3, uh, God's voice is compared to that of a lion. At the angel's shout, seven thunders uttered their own voices. Uh, Psalm 29, verse 3 says this, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. Amos 3, 8, The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who who can but prophesy? And then Hosea 11, verse 10. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And so we have that tie-in there as well. And so the seven thunders did not just roar. They had an intelligible message since the seven seals and seven trumpets involve a sequence of events. It's reasonable to assume that the thunders also reveal a sequence of events, perhaps parentheses, perhaps a series of plagues giving further warning of worse judgment to come, but the word thunder always means wrath, judgments of God. Uh, William Barclay in his commentary suggests that this refers back to the seven voices of God in Psalm 29 that says this, I read verse, uh, uh, verse 3, that says the voice, number one, the voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. Verse 4, number 2, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Number 3, number 4, verse 5, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young, young wild ox. The fifth one is verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. Uh, number 8, Verse 8, I should say, number 6, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. And then verse 9, it says, the voice of the Lord uh, makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry glory. And so we have that idea where William Barclay suggests that it refers back to the seven voices of God. Both the angel's voice and the voice of the thunders, apart from their message, speak the word, speak to the world of God's power and God's majesty. Uh, you recall in chapter 1, verse 19, John had been a, given a command to write, and he was, a write, he was about to write what he saw, and the seven thunders said, you know, don't do it, seal that up. Sealing them means that those things which the seven thunders uttered contained a revelation God simply did not want people to know. Daniel was told to seal the book until the time of the end, Daniel 12, verse 9. So though, though these messages were not to be revealed, the very fact that the Bible speaks about the seven thunders is important. Now I'm going to repeat myself here, but it says, 
uh, it indicates that some things are going to happen during the end times that have not been revealed. This should make believers very careful not to be overly dogmatic about the sequence of events in the book of Revelation. Certainly, it is not wise to speculate about the message of the seven thunders. Those who have done so have said many foolish and ridiculous things. And I would amen that because you can just start reading various commentaries and commentators and you have all kinds of ideas about what this might be or that, whatever. Once again, uh, the, best, the best thing I can say is it, it might be that. It perhaps could be that, but we don't know for sure. All right? Uh, the, the seven thunders. I uh, would go on. Number four, what three things does the angel's oath teach? All right, first of all, if you're right, taking notes, one, two, three. First of all, the oath contrasts the difference between God and man. The angel raised his hand to the eternal God who created the heavens, earth, and sea. Angels understand the contrast uh, between themselves and God. So there is a difference between God, man, and angels. Number two, the second thing it teaches us, the oath emphasizes that God is faithful to keep his promises. He will do what he said through the prophets. Revelation 10 verse 7. Thirdly, the oath emphasizes that there will be no more delay. After the seventh trumpet, things that are a mystery will come plain to people. When the seventh trumpet sounds, the end is near. All right. Now, the mystery, things that are a mystery, as it says, uh, the mystery, uh, the nature, the plan, the, the purpose of God will be known. People will know all along. Uh, you can also read about oaths in Deuteronomy 32, verse 40, as well as Daniel 12, verse 7. A little cross-reference, a little study for your own there. And so three things the angel's oath teaches us. And then the fifth question what are two truths related to the little scroll? First truth is this. Each person must choose or desire God's word for their own. All right? Um, the angel told John to eat the little scroll. The scroll represented God's word about the future. Peter encourages us to desire the word. It is spiritual food for us. Ezekiel and Jeremiah both ate the word of God, Ezekiel 2, 8 through chapter 3, verse 3, and Jeremiah 15, 16. Jesus also said that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from, proceeds, or comes forth from the word of God, the mouth of God, Matthew 4, 4. Now, God doesn't force us to eat, to digest, to, to consume his word. We must do that, all right? Uh, so we, you and I must choose to take it. First truth, all right? Each person chooses to desire or not desire the Word of God. The little scroll that John 8 also illustrates the second truth, though, and that is that God's Word is sweet, and it's, it's wonderful to receive the message from God. I mean, taste and see that the Lord is good, all right? In His presence, we find fullness of joy. It's wonderful. God's Word speaks to us as you read, as you study, as you, as you obey God's Word. It's wonderful to see that in action in our lives. But 
when we share his truth with others, the result can be bitter. In other words, the truth of God often separates friends and family members. In some countries, a person that comes to Christ will be ostracized by their family, put out, ridiculed, persecuted by their family if they become a Christian and live for Christ. And so there's that bitterness there as well. Um, to those who submit to God, our message is the sweet perfume of life. To those who resist God, our message of truth is the order of death. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 14 through 16, where he says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, here it is, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life, who is sufficient for these things. And so basically, those who resist God, our message is a message of death for them. They resist God, they resist God's salvation. Now think of it this way, God's word is both sweet and bitter. It's sweet in that we, we see the mercy of God. It's bitter in that we see the judgment of God. If, if you can't see the judgment of God in Revelation, you're missing a large part of what this book is about. Uh, God's word is sweet in that God is love. We, we, we embrace, we, we, we uh, bask in the love of God. It's wonderful. But God not only is a God of love, but He's a God of justice. All right? God is a God of grace, but He's also a God of truth. He's a God of holiness. And so keeping that in mind, uh, as, as uh, Steve, the evangelist of Pensacola Revival, always used to say, one day a loving Savior, sweet, is going to be a severe judge, bitter. Do you see, do you see both sides of that? And I, th I think we need to keep in mind, especially in the Western church, that there are two sides of the gospel. There's the love, the grace, the mercy, but there's also the justice, the holiness, the, the judgment as well. And so we have, to, we have to get the whole picture, all right, biblically. And so we see, we see the two, two truths related to the little scroll. Now, any questions so far then in chapter 10? Let's go on to chapter 11, the two witnesses. This is going to get interesting. All right. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles and they will trample on the holy city for 42 months, 1,260 days. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, check this out. <laughs> Fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. 
These men have power to shut up the sky so it will not rain during, that t- during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. Here it is, as often as they want. So there's, they've been given great leeway here, as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. We'll talk about that being Jerusalem in a little bit. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Once again, there's the bitter part. They, were, they weren't tormenting them in the sense of you know, physical whatever, but as they were prophesying, as they were preaching, as they were calling people to repentance, and they didn't want to turn, they wanted to do away with these two dudes. Now, verse 11, after the three and a half days, I love this, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to God, to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. Uh, Verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worship God fell on their faces saying, uh, we give thanks to you, Lord, God Almighty, the one who is and who was because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your servants and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. A lot of information in verse in chapter eleven. Before we get into the five questions then on the two witnesses, let's talk a little bit and get a little input of who you have heard, not that it's right or wrong, but who you have heard who the two witnesses might be. 
Moses and Elijah. How many have heard that? I've heard that. Okay. Go ahead. Same thing. Enoch. Enoch and Elijah. Okay. Who else have you heard? All right. Anybody else? Now, the things, who, who, now, that's what you heard. Who do you believe it might be? Be careful. <laughs> Hebrews 9.27, we'll get into that. All right. Let's go a little deeper now, because this is going to be fun. There have been, and, and honestly, from what I've studied, this right here, the two, who are the two witnesses, has caused more controversy in this book than anything else. All right, so let's try to bring some kind of understanding here. Uh, there are all kinds of opinions out there about these witnesses. A few teachers think the witnesses are not human. They think they are the law and the prophets. Others speculate that they rep represent the Old and the New Testaments. But John usually tells us if he's using symbolism. We believe the witnesses are people because it's the easiest way to understand them. Now, I said that to say, when the plain truth makes sense, seek no other sense of meaning. General rule. These witnesses are much like Old Testament prophets. Now, John compares the witnesses to several biblical ministers. He says they are two olive trees and two lampstands in verse 4. All right, olive trees, lampstands. Lampstands do what? They give light. All right, lampstands give light. They give clarity, truth, that idea. And then there are two olive trees. Uh, the two olive trees compares them with Zerubbabel, and Joshua, the high priest, in Zechariah 3 and 4. How many have caught that or studied that? All right, think about that. In, in Zechariah uh, chapter 4, verse 6, you know the, the, the phrase Pentecostals, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And so we are, based, based on verse 4 then, we know that these two witnesses are spirit-filled. They're full of the Holy Ghost based on that right there, all right? Uh, so uh, they can turn water and, uh, into blood and bring plagues on earth. Moses, remember Moses doing that? All right. Um, again, the witnesses are like Elijah in a couple of ways. They can cause fire to destroy their enemies, God who answers by fire, and they can seal the sky so it will not rain for three and a half years. All right, there are comparisons there. All right, we can see that, Revelation 11, 5 and 6, 2 Kings uh, 1, 10 through 12, and James 5, 17. Talks about that. So some people compare them to Zerubbabel, Joshua, Moses, Elijah. Others say they are like uh, Enoch and Elijah. And they base that on Hebrews 9, 27, which speaks of death and judgment. It is appointed unto men once to die, after this the judgment. Well, since... Enoch and Elijah did not die, then they think they must die in the tribulation. But many believers, think about this, many believers are going to miss death because of the rapture. So how do you, 
work that out with Hebrews 9.27 if you're basing your answer on Hebrews 9.27. All who are alive at the rapture will not die. Hebrews 9.27 does not mean everyone will die. It emphasizes in context that the judgment comes after death. Yes, it's been a point where you know, we're all going to die, but the, the emphasis on the judgment. And so there is no second chance to believe after death. That's the emphasis of Hebrews 9.27. Therefore, Hebrews 9.27 does not help us identify the two witnesses. As we have seen, John compares the two witnesses, hang with me, to Zerubbabel, Joshua, Moses, and Elijah. But... The ministry of these two witnesses is greater than the ministry of these Old Testament servants. Moses could not bring plagues any time he desired. Elijah was not known for bringing plagues. The two witnesses will minister in, now check this out, in the power of and spirit of Moses and Elijah. John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Uh, A little cross-reference, it was prophesied in Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 that there would come one in the the spirit of Elijah. Well, that was fulfilled in John the Baptist, right? Are you with me? John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Still, John the Baptist was not the same person as Elijah. Elijah. He was his own man. Likewise, we do not need to expect the two witnesses to be the same as anyone before them. Like them, perhaps. Greater than, yes. These men will probably be two spirit-filled Jews. God's going to anoint them in a very powerful way, just as he anointed the prophets of old, just as he anointed Moses or Elijah or Jeremiah or whoever. But we got to be careful that we don't go where the word doesn't go. Now, God has never left any period of history without a witness. Thus, he has his witnesses even during the great time of tribulation. Hardly anything, as I said, in the book of Revelation has stirred up more controversy than the identification of these two people. Uh, Many have become very dogmatic, saying, yes, it is Elijah, yes, it is Enoch, yes, it is Moses. We don't know for sure. Here's what I want you to take away from this. It is is probable more important to recognize, other than naming them, that there are two of them, all right? There's two of them. They work together. Their agreement further establishes the truth of their prophetic warnings and their message and the plagues they bring will leave the world without excuse. Think about it. If you oppose them, fire comes out and burns you up. Now, don't mess with the prophets of God, right? Don't, don't mess with these guys, all right? That's, that's what I'm saying here. So, so we've got to be careful that we don't necessarily name them because they are not named, but we can see the miracles. We can see the anointing on their lives. Uh, Jeremiah 5.14, uh, when, when, when fire comes out, whatever. I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and the people would, and the fire shall consume them. Think about these anointed, mightily anointed witnesses 
that are going to be prophesying and calling, they're in sackcloth. We'll get to that in a bit. But calling people to repentance. And those that don't, don't want to, their hearts become harder and harder and harder. But we are told that evidently some do because they're giving glory to God. So we'll, we'll get to that more. So the two witnesses. So what you take away, don't give them names, but you can see what they do. All right, and that's all. Be, be okay with that. All right. Number three, when do the two witnesses minister in the tribulation? Because John says they minister for three and a half years, 1260 days. This is the same as 42 months or one half of the tribulation. Therefore, the witnesses are probably either in the first or the last half of the seven years. What is it? We're not told. Again, we're not told. All right, the Bible does not clearly tell us which part of the tribulation they are in. The beast that comes out of the abyss attacks them in Revelation eleven seven. But when does he kill them? Does he kill them at mid-trib when he breaks the covenant? The safest answer is perhaps. I don't, I don't know, you know. Uh, in other words, shall we try to speak with certainty about things that aren't clear? This should be... Uh, this would be not wise. In other words, God will not judge a teacher who studies but admits he does not know some things. But God will judge those who claim to know more than they know. James 3.1 Do not describe a stone pillar if all you see is a wooden fence. There is a time to thunder and there's a time to whisper. You see, Revelation, you'll recall, is mostly concerned about the second half of the seven years, the, the, uh, this, the, the tribulation, the great tribulation. Therefore, some Bible teachers think the two witnesses are in the last half of tribulation. Recall that they lie dead in the street for three and a half days. Perhaps these three and a half days are included in the 1,260 days they prophesy. You know, Abel is still speaking though he is dead, it says in Hebrews 11.4. Thus, there is a sense in which the two witnesses could still be testifying, though dead in the street. I mean, people are rejoicing. They're, they're sending each other gifts. I mean, it's, it's like we should not try, honestly, to press exact measurements on, on Revelation. It's a book of many symbols, as we've been talking about. Daniel seems to add periods of 30 and 45 days to the tribulation, as we'll get into that, Daniel 12, 11, and 12. We should not try to worry about the small details. However, it is important to obey what God does make clear. We are responsible for walking in the life that God gives us. And so once again, which part is it? I don't know. I would lean toward the last three and a half years, but I'm, but I'm not sure. All right. Number four, what is the purpose of the two witnesses? John says they are dressed in sackcloth. The black sackcloth is literally emphasizing a call to repentance. The Jews made sackcloth from the, goat of a uh, the hair of a black goat. They wore it to show sorrow or repentance. Jacob, you'll recall, put on sackcloth when his sons told him that Joseph was dead. Ahab lay in sackcloth and walked, and walked softly after Elijah rebuked him. The king was showing repentance. The whole city of Nineveh repented when Jonah preached to them. They put on sackcloth from the least to the greatest, the greatest to the least, even on the beasts. Even the king took off his robes. He put on sackcloth and sat down in dust. 
And that's in Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. Sodom would have repented and warned sackcloth if it had seen the miracles in Capernaum. That Capernaum saw Matthew eleven twenty three. So John says the two witnesses will prophesy for, for 1260 days. The prophets would bring a message from God to the people. The two prophets will call sinners to repent. They will warn people about the coming judgments. Prophets are bold. Prophets are fearless. Like Elijah, they will rebuke sinners face to face. Like John the Baptist, they will bring a strong message of repentance, calling on people to turn from their wicked ways and turn to the only living God. That's their message. That's the purpose of these two witnesses. And so question five, then wrapping this up, almost wrapping this up, um, how do people respond to the two witnesses? Well, the Antichrist kills the two witnesses after they complete their ministry. John Wesley believed that a man is immortal until God is through with him on earth. In other words, God protects them for three and a half years you know, for, for what they're doing. He, he's protecting them. He's protecting his witnesses until their work on earth is finished. I have come to the conclusion in my life, turning 60 years old, when my time is done, it's done. And no demon in hell is going to change that. You know, you know what I'm saying? When God says, you've done your job, okay. And God, in, in a sense, takes his covering off of them, so then the enemy attacks and kills them. Do you see what I'm saying here? And so, friends, God's the giver of life. God's the giver of breath. And God's the one who determines when we breathe our last breath. That's, that's the point I'm trying to make here. And so God protects his witnesses until their work on earth is finished. Then they lie in the street for three and a half days. It's one day for each year of their ministry. Uh, what, a, what a shameful way to treat anyone. Uh, Revelation 11.9 says the people from all the earth will gaze upon their dead bodies. But notice that God didn't allow it to go on for very long. The sorrow or shame of a believer's death is always short compared to eternity. Now, those married to the earth rejoice. They think the beast has won. They're rejoicing. John gives us the public response. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on earth. Remember that phrase, those who live on earth. It, it means to those who live only for earth and for the, the things of the world. In other words, they're living here, but they're living for the things of this world, not for the things of eternity. And so they rejoice when the prophets are dead. You think about Christmas time, believers in some countries exchange gifts. Thus they celebrate the birth of God's Son. But these evil people exchange gifts to celebrate the death of God's witnesses. However, they do not know how short their period of rejoicing will be. Will this be televised on TV or, or whatever? I kind of think it might be you know, uh, and with today's technology or whatever. But in contrast to those who rejoice, there is, there is surely another small group that John does not mention here. The world rejoiced, you recall, when Jesus died, still the disciples wept. And where it says in John 16, 20, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. 
think about what's not mentioned here. The 144,000 seem to be on earth during this time of the two witnesses. If so, they'll be weeping while the world celebrates. Likewise, there is a great multitude that comes out of the great tribulation. These believers will be weeping for the two witnesses while the word world rejoices. But it also tells me, friends, God always has a remnant. That is, a small group who remains faithful to God. Elijah thought he was the only man on earth who loved Yahweh, but God told him there were still 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Most of the world will reject the two witnesses. Uh, they will follow the Antichrist, but there will still be some who refuse the mark and die for the Lamb in the tribulation. The two witnesses will help some to believe. These new believers will rejoice when God raises the two prophets from the dead. As the two witnesses ascend, a great earthquake comes. At that very hour, verse 13, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to God. So evidently some got saved during those three and a half years of these prophets preaching repentance. We're not told for sure, but fear causes some people to start praying. You know what happened though once the terror passes? Quick story, and I'm ending this up because my time's up. Uh, a businessman was riding in an airplane. He was a sinner who never attended church. Suddenly the plane was beginning to shake. It started going down fast and fast toward the ocean. The pilot announced that they were going to crash. The man began to pray, Oh God, God, if you're real, will you help me? Help us now. God, if you'll help me right now, I'll give you half my business. I'll attend church. I'll read the Bible. And all of a sudden the plane stopped shaking. The pilot spoke again. He announced that the problem had gone away, that they were not going to crash. And the businessman sighed. Oh, thank you, thank you. He looked up to heaven and smiled. He said, never mind, God, I don't need your help yet. Were the people in Revelation eleven thirteen like the man on the plane? We hope not. But many people pray when they're afraid. So we don't know if the prayer was a prayer of repentance and genuine prayer or not. We don't know that for sure. God knows that. But God sent the two witnesses to minister for three and a half years. They did miraculous signs. They preached the truth after they were killed. God raised them from the dead in public. Then he sent a great earthquake. Perhaps all of God's effort led some to repentance. But these in Revelation eleven thirteen seem to fulfill what the angel of fourteen seven told people to do. Quickly, in closing and conclusion, the seventh trumpet, five things. The seventh trumpet announced at least five things. Recall, once again, two visions between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. John moves from these two visions to the last trumpet. The seventh trumpet covers a broad period of time. It takes us beyond the tribulation to the end of the millennium. And God encourages us once again by showing us our final victory. The seventh trumpet announces five things. Number one, it is the time for a new king over the world. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Handel's Messiah comes from that passage. Second, it's a time for giving thanks. Loud voices in heaven are heard when his kingdom finally comes and his will is done. Third, it is the time for judging the dead. This occurs at the end of the millennium. 
Fourth, it's the time for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great. This occurs at the end of the tribulation before the millennium. Note the contrast, though, between sinners and saints. Sinners are judged after the millennium. Saints are rewarded before the millennium. Difference. Fifth, it is a time for destroying those who destroy the earth. Here, John probably refers to the beast, the false prophet, and the kings who help the beast and their armies. Remember that the sixth seal takes us all the way to the end of the tribulation. Once again, the seventh trumpet escorts us to the end as well. God encourages believers by showing us the final victory. Now we are ready to return then to the tribulation. Once again, may our Western minds comprehend the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning, and how things overlap in the tribulation period. So... I have more to say, but our time is past. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Next week, chapter 12. Chapter 12, we'll talk about, and I have closing questions to even get to, but we'll talk about in chapter 12, the dragon and the woman. We'll talk about the characteristics of the dragon. We'll talk about characteristics of the woman and the woman's children, and then the, char the characteristics of overcomers. I have the outline done already because I can't wait to get to it. All right, it's going to be a great study. Thank you for being here. God bless you all. Hope to see you on Sunday. Blessings.